Welcome and bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Leader of the Pack. Is she really going out with them? There she is, let's ask her. Hey, hey Betty, is, is that Jimmy Spring you're wearing? Uh-huh. Gee, it must be fun riding with him. Is he picking you up after school today? By the way, where'd you meet him? But first, how are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. You know, Patty and Betty, in these opening segments, sometimes we talk about topics that are related to the world of musical theater, and sometimes I offer words of encouragement to our listeners, and I haven't done that in a while. I would like to take this moment to do that, and I want to talk specifically about careers, jobs. It's been a bit of a rough week for me, professionally in terms of my day-to-day job, my career, I have had to deal with a lot of frustration and anger. And I just want to say that if you listen to the podcast and you find yourself dealing with not just, you know, any job comes with its frustrations, but then there are times when I think we realize that something is inherently wrong with the job that we find ourselves in, the work environment that we find ourselves in. And when you feel that kind of palpable frustration or anxiety, it can really hit hard. And I would encourage you to listen to that as you process it and really try to work out what's going on when you have those experiences. Start taking the tiny steps that will get you out of that work scenario and into one that will hopefully allow you to feel comfortable and at ease. Hopefully you'll be able to work with people that you get along with, that you enjoy being with. I I hope that we can all just eventually come to a point where we feel comfortable in those positions. I encourage you to, you know, just take the tiny steps, apply for something today, Drop off a resume, give a call, reach out to friends who you think might be able to keep an eye out for you. You know, if you take those steps, at least you can tell yourself that you are not completely resigned. You haven't allowed yourself to sort of be consumed by this anger that you feel. You shouldn't have to feel that kind of anger, by the way. That's not healthy. And I know it's hard to leave a job and go into a new one. I know the prospect of going for any amount of time without insurance or unemployment is scary as hell. But I encourage all of us, including myself, to have a little bit of courage and just take those small steps. Those are meaningful steps, and they will get you to where you want to go eventually. Hopefully. Okay, that's it. I don't have anything to say about musicals this time around. I just wanted to uh, just reach out to our listeners as people. We're not 
just musical theater robots who love to talk about singing and dancing every week. Let's get the show facts for this week's subject, Leader of the Pack. Show me the show facts! Uh, Leader of the Pack was a 1985 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on April 18th, 1985 at the Ambassador Theater and ran for 120 performances. Now, when it comes to the book, the music, and the lyrics, there are some inconsistencies between the published libretto and the information I found online at the Internet Broadway database, and I'm going to talk about those inconsistencies now. On the cover of the published libretto, it says the book was written by Ann Beats. Book by Ann Beats. But on the Internet Broadway database, that website says liner notes by Ann Beats. There is no credited book writer on the IBDB site. On the published libretto, it says based on the original play by Melanie Mintz. But on the IBDB, it says based on an original concept by Melanie Mintz. And so it begs the question. So what is the truth? Let's move on to the music and lyrics because there are some inconsistencies here as well. Now on the cover of the published libretto, huh? all this information is on the cover, okay? Spoiler alert, I checked it out through the library. On that cover, it says music and lyrics by Ellie Greenwich and Friends. But on the IBDB, it says music and lyrics by Ellie Greenwich with additional music and lyrics by Jeff Barry, Phil Spector, Tony Powers, George Morton, Jeff Kent, and Ellen Foley. It begs the question... So what is the truth? On the published libretto's cover and... And on the IBDB, we get an additional material by Jack Hefner credit. On the IBDB, we have opening dance sequence composed and orchestrated by Harold Wheeler. And on the IBDB, it says dance arrangements by Timothy... Grap and read. Grap and read. That's what we're going with. The director of the original Broadway production of Leader of the Pack was Michael Peters. The musical director was Jimmy Vivino. Choreographer Michael Peters. Scenic design Tony Walton. Lighting design Pamela Cooper. Sound design Abe Jacob. Costume design Robert Demora. And the original Broadway cast included Ellie Greenwich, Patrick Cassidy, Dinah Mainoff, Dennis Bailey, Shirley Black Brown, Patty Darcy, Annie Golden, Christopher Gregory. Jasmine Guy, Danny Herman, Lon Hoyt, Darlene Love, Keith McDaniel, Jody Mokia, Mosia, Mochia, Peter Neptune, fantastic name, Peter Neptune, Zora Rasmussen, Joey Sheck, Gina Taylor, and Barbara Yeager. Ah, there we go. And of course, of course, of course, as always, I apologize for the mispronunciation of any first or last names. Tony nods. Okay, we got another perfunctory best musical nomination. That's the only category in which this show was nominated, Best Musical. So, one nomination, zero awards, and I say perfunctory because, again, were you just rounding out the roster? Uh, we can't just nominate three shows. We can't just nominate two shows. What else came out this year? Oh, my God. That? All right, fine. Give it a nomination, but nothing else. Nothing else. The plot of Leader of the Pack is... Okay, we've been talking about a lot of thin plots as of late here on the podcast, but this one... Uh, spoiler alert, I already told you, I, I borrowed the script from the public library and it was just one of the worst scripts I've ever read in my life, just so thin, and I'm going to be an asshole about this when it comes to summarizing this plot, so every sentence in my summary is going to start with... <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to start with Ellie Greenwich's name, okay? I'm just going to make this sound like a coloring book, a paint-by-number set, because that's what we're dealing with. Ellie Greenwich is a teenager who wants to write songs for a living. Ellie Greenwich and her friends Shelly and Mickey are in a trio called the Jivettes. 
Ellie Greenwich meets Jeff Barry while trying to get a job with producer Gus Sharkey. Ellie Greenwich gets a job writing songs with producer Gus Sharkey. Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry run into each other one year later. Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry start dating and writing hit songs. Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry win a lot of awards and make a lot of money. Ellie Greenwich refuses to stay at home and raise a family while Jeff Barry works in L.A. Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry get a divorce because Jeff Barry is unhappy. Ellie Greenwich lies to friends and family about the state of her marriage. Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry write a few more songs together. Ellie Greenwich is devastated to discover Jeff has remarried. Jeff Barry, I should say, in case you were confused. Jeff Barry has remarried while out in L.A. Ellie Greenwich, the actual real-life Ellie Greenwich of the present-day 1980s, holds a Q&A, a fake Q&A. It's scripted. It's a whole, it's a fucking, it's a whole thing is what it is. A Q&A with the cast at the Ambassador Theater. So they're referencing the fact that here we are in the Ambassador Theater. Ellie Greenwich invites her friend and longtime collaborator Darlene Love to sing River Deep, Mountain High, a song that was written for Darlene but given to Tina Turner by Gus Sharkey. Ellie Greenwich dedicates a song to the friends and family she made along the way. Uh, that's it. I took a train from the downtown public library location to the Belmont station, which is where I get off, baby. Wink, wink. And I finished the whole damn thing in less than, I'd say, maybe 20 minutes. I, it was a real brisk read. And I do want to note some highlights from Ann Beat's script, uh, including... Okay, so we got a stage direction right up top here. This stage direction reads as follows... Four chorus boys enter one at a time, dressed in contemporary 1980s costume. Each does a specialty dance indicative of present day, according to each boy's individual talents. One might do a break dance, another perhaps a somersault. A somersault? Is that really indicative of the 1980s? Ah, the 1980s, when all the boys were doing somersaults. Ugh. Here's another stage direction for you. Annie, Jasmine, and Barbara enter in exaggerated 1960s costumes with giant beehive hairdos. In the Broadway production, these hairdos flew off during the following number to reveal normal-sized beehive wigs. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Oh, my ribs. They're going to have to stitch me up after this because my ribs are slamming against my flesh. They're ripping and rending my flesh asunder. Oh, I'm being torn apart by my own laughter. Ah, they were big and now they're normal sized. Ah. I do have a few clips from the original Broadway cast album, dialogue clips, I should say, that I want to drop in here during our discussion, our analysis of this script. Here is a clip of Darlene Love talking. Listen, I'm going to take you on a musical journey through the record kingdom, and I'm going to tell you about a girl whose song sold a phenomenal 30 million records. Why do I get to tell this story? Because I'm Darlene Love, baby. I was there. Let's go back to where it all began. Once upon a time, there was a girl who grew up in a house at the corner of Starlight and Springtime Lane. I ain't making this up. And she used to write all her songs on an accordion, too. I mean, really, she did. 
I should say that for all of the hullabaloo they make about Darlene Love being the narrator of this story, Darlene Love never reappears as the show's narrator and never speaks beyond this point. So I don't know why they're making such a big deal about this part of the show. Oh, Darlene Love's gonna be taking us on a journey through the record kingdom. She never comes back as the narrator. It's so ridiculous. There are so many references in this script to people wearing dark glasses. Jeff is wearing dark glasses when we first see him. Gus and Ellie wear dark glasses at one point. Characters named Keith, Peter, Lon, and Joey wear dark glasses. Everyone's wearing dark glasses. Are these sunglasses? If that's the case, why not say they're wearing sunglasses? It's like the phrase dark glasses is an activator for the winter soldier. Longing, rusted, 17, daybreak, furnace, benign, nine, home coming one freight car dark glasses oh winter soldier winter soldier i do want to do a bit of recitation from this script when i don't have clips i'm just going to be reading the dialogue out loud to you this is a dialogue between jeff barry and ellie greenwich the first line you're going to hear is jeff and then it's going to alternate between jeff and ellie so jeff ellie jeff ellie jeff ellie you get it okay so we're starting with jeff well, hello there. Now, you're gonna listen to me, Mr. Sharky. Wait a minute, calm down. I'm not Gus Sharky, the big producer. You're not? No, I'm just a writer here. Oh, yeah? What do you write? Hit songs. Oh, really? Well, I'm here trying to get a job. Get a job. The Silhouettes, 1958. Silhouettes, The Rays, 1957. And then it says that Jeff is backing left away from her. He's backing away from her as he says... Hey, very good, very good. Hope to see you around. I certainly hope so. Jeff and Ellie are constantly talking in song titles like this. It's like they're on an episode of Whose Line Is It Anyway? And it drives me batty. They even do it when their marriage is falling apart. Here's another audio clip from the original Broadway cast. This is a bit of dialogue between Ellie Greenwich and Gus Sharkey. I love it. You love it? It's a hit. It is good, isn't it? I gotta have it. Ooh. Now, now, Mr. Sharkey, you can't just have it. I'm no fool. The only way you'll get this song is if you give me a job writing here. All right, but I won't pay a penny more than $75 a week. Make it 100. All right, 100, but I get publishing rights. All right, publishing rights, but I get two coffee breaks. All right, it's a deal. You see, I drive a very hard bargain, Mr. Sharkey. Very hard bargain indeed, Miss Greenwich. Get to work. Now, I think the intro should go like this. Two, three, four. Does Ellie drive a hard bargain? Is the coffee break line meant to be a joke? Because giving away publishing rights in exchange for two coffee breaks seems like a weak trade-off to me. Here's another bit of dialogue between Jeff and Ellie, starting with Jeff. Knock, knock. Who's there? Astronaut. Astronaut who? Astronaut what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And then the script notes that Ellie, who, <laughs> who doesn't laugh, it says doesn't laugh, Ellie says, knock, knock. Who's there? Consumption. Consumption who? Consumption be done about those lousy jokes you keep telling me? Jeff grabs her by the waist, that's the direction there, and he says, you send me. And Ellie says, Sam Cook, right? Ugh. Then the stage direction right after that bit of dialogue is Jeff kisses Ellie and then exits stage right. Immediately from stage right appears a pair of giant lips. Inside the lips stand Jasmine and Patty. Ellie joins them during the song The Lips with the three girls inside move towards stage left. I really wish I could have seen those big ass lips. Here's another stage direction for you. 
The lights come up on couples necking in three parked cars in Lover's Lane. In the Broadway production, the cars were three flat cutouts attached to short wheeled stools. A comic effect was achieved by the boys sitting on the stools in the cars, facing upstage, so away from the audience, and the girls straddling them with their legs sticking up in the air. Dim lights and day glow costumes completed the mood. Oh, I bet it did. Oh, what a comedic effect. Oh, the girls' legs are straight up in the air. They're getting railed by the guys. Isn't that hilarious? Oh, I'm fucking you. Oh, oh, yeah, hilarious. I'm glad this went to Broadway. It seems like a really fucking wonderful piece of pop entertainment. Fuck you, T. I almost said, fuck you, TV show. <laughs> got another stage direction here for you. Oh, I got stage directions for days. Annie, Barbara, and Jasmine enter right. They wear round-bottomed hoop skirts, which, when turned up, resemble enormous 45 RPM records with their legs as the center spindles. What the fuck is with this show and legs? This fucking, ugh, this gaze, this male gaze. Oh, the legs that are sticking up in the air. Oh, the legs are being shoved through a record. Ooh, ooh, baby, play that music. Music for me, baby. Oh, oh, oh. Here's dialogue from a scene in which Jeff and Ellie are dressing for an unnamed awards show. Ellie says, So tell me, do I look like a person who's about to accept a half a dozen awards? And Jeff says, You look like you're wearing the wallpaper from some steakhouse. Come on. Here's dialogue from a scene in which Jeff, Ellie, and Gus go to a club called Shay Smooch. Shay Smooch. Ellie points right and says, Hey, get a load of the ice sculpture by the bar. And Jeff says, That's not an ice sculpture, that's Andy Warhol. And then Ellie, going over to the Lips Banquet, the Lips Banquet, no idea what the fuck they're talking about, she says, Do you think we're supposed to sit on these lips? Stage direction. Darlene, Jasmine, and Gina appear, dressed as Santa's helpers. They sing in front of a giant Christmas stocking. Okay. Stage direction. At, this is after Ellie has a breakdown late into the show. Quote, This moment and music in the Broadway production marked the entrance of the real Ellie Greenwich. Young Ellie remained in a spotlight. As she turned and began slowly walking up center, a beam of light came up through a door up center, which had opened. That, sen that sentence makes no sense sense to me. Every time I read it, I cannot get a handle on what is actually supposed to be happening in terms of an effect. The real Ellie Greenwich entered, walked downstage, and met young Ellie. She put her hand on young Ellie's shoulder for a brief moment. Then Miss Greenwich came downstage as young Ellie exited up center. The up center door closed, and the lights came up full on stage. The stage directions go on to explain that if you can't secure the real Ellie Greenwich, you can always, you know, cast an older woman as the Ellie Greenwich of the 1980s. Alternatively, the actor playing young Ellie can just keep playing Ellie. Considering Ellie Greenwich died in 2009, I think it's safe to say we should be exploring any and all remaining options. So, when the real Ellie Greenwich appears, she says to no one in particular, I can't believe that it took my music 23 years to get from the Brill Building at 49th and Broadway to the Ambassador Theater at Broadway and 49th. And then we get this dialogue. Ellie, can I just ask you one thing? Sure. Did you run run is such a great song. Thanks. But what does it mean? Nothing. Wow. <laughs> Ellie, I thought everything meant something. True, but it really means nothing. You see, we wrote these songs and we got stuck for a line. So we put these cute little riffs in. To this very, very day, Jeff and I speak and we say, hey, you know, we could have gone. And when he walked me home, we had a cup of coffee and we watched TV. You know, or you could also go. And 
down when he walked me home. We had a glass of wine and then he jumped on me. There's lots of things you can do other than to do run runs. Ellie Greenwich, ladies and gentlemen, pouring the hottest of tea. I hope you like your tea hot, your gems uncut, and your illusions shattered, Patty. Patty's the person that's asking that question, I should say. <laughs> Don't want to confuse you there. Okay, those are all the random little bitlets I could pull from the script. As you can see, not exactly the best script in the world. Uh, for the purposes of this week's episode, I read the original book by Ann Beats. It's available through the library. I've returned it. If anybody in Chicago wants to check it out now. I also listened to the 1985 original Broadway cast album, which technically is not available. It's way beyond out of print, but you can listen to it as a playlist on YouTube. I pulled all of the clips from YouTube and turned them into MP3s, kind of built my own album at that point because I just had to have it on the go. I had to have this wonderful album on the go. Can you tell I'm being sarcastic? I also watched the 1985 Tony Awards performance of the songs I Wanna Love Him So Bad and Do What Diddy. My big takeaway from this performance, it's fucking endless. Cut this shit in half. It's introduced by George Hearn, who looks like he's 20 seconds into a bad trip and having a hard time getting through the copy. <laughs> Whoops, the avuncular vibrating terror stocks from my dreamscape are clamoring for my salty genitals again. <laughs> uh, leader of the pack, everyone! A round of applause! Oh! This clip is perfect reference material for any set designer who's curious to know what rank mediocrity looks like. I thought for the Tony Awards we could have the ladies dancing on a tombstone. Ugh, Christ, whatever, Tony. And if you're an actor, why not watch this clip to learn what not to do as an ensemble member? Because if I have to watch one more group of 20-something men nudge each other and pretend to talk, I will 100% retire to the Alps and become a monk. Hey, we're nudging each other over here. We're pointing at chicks over here. We're giving each other a hard time over here. Hey, hey, hey. When it comes to the score, the scratchy, hard-to-swallow, positively gritty bone-broth truth is we will not be covering most of the songs featured in Leader of the Pack. I'm not convinced Lame Duck covers of Da Do Ron Ron and Do Wah Diddy have any real worth in the grand scheme of the musical theater canon, but if you can convince me otherwise, hit me up. Uh, there's actually quite a bit one can plumb from a song like Hanky Panky. Uh, you heard the real Ellie Greenwich admit her songs are largely derivative and pointless, right? She comes this shy of admitting she and Jeff Berry cranked out their entire songbook through a meat grinder, so I hope you'll excuse me for gliding past most of these songs. They're fun songs, they just don't make a case for themselves as components in a narrative musical. But I do want to talk about some of these tracks, so let's begin Patty and Benny with And Then He kissed me.
leader of the pack's cover of And Then He Kissed Me makes a great deal, a great case, I should say, for staying home, slipping into a set of comfy PJs, and tucking in with all of your old LPs from the 1960s. The musical's version of the song won't set your hair on fire or cause you to cannonball into a canyon, but why listen to Broadway singers imitate the crystals when you can listen to the crystals? saying the original is always better, but in this case, there's no contest. Stay at home with the crystals. They won't do you dirty. never heard Not Too Young to Get Married until I sat down with the OBC album, and it wound up being a fun discovery. I like it. My diagnosis is that it's a positive bop. If I haven't made it clear, I am a fan of this era and the songs of Ellie Greenwich and John Barry. I'm simply not a fan of how they were meant to distract from slash make up for Leader of the Pack's auspiciously awful book. And the question remains, would you rather listen to Darling Love of the 1980s sing this song? as you just did, or would you rather hear Darling Love from the original single? My mama said I can't see you no more Cause we don't know what love really means She says we can't get married for three years or more Cause we're only in our teens Oh no
socks and the blue jeans singing with Darling Love? Are you kidding me? It's not an actual question. I was asking the question in bad faith. Why are you making me dislike Christmas? What did I ever do to you? As a reminder, the creative team dressed up Darlene Love and her cohorts as Santa's helpers and had them sing in front of a giant stocking for this number. They could have found a way for Ellie to sing this damn song and have it reflect her gloom, but why would Ellie sing it when Darlene can sing it for her? And in front of a giant stocking, no less. This is the 80s, baby. Fuck character development. We got ourselves a Christmas stocking, the size of the Chrysler building, and we'll be damned if it goes to waste. Did you see that pair of lips we got? Oh, those lips sure are big, aren't they? I'm not saying these idiots were wrestling with a burgeoning fetishistic curiosity for gigantism. Yeah, if I'm not saying that, I guess I'm not saying anything at all. My enormous lips are sealed. No, I'm not doing very well. I built a lot of dreams, but they fell down to that too. Yes, it's true. I never thought he'd say goodbye. But when the music changed, I felt the magic die. Oh, why? Oh, why? We were standing at the top. But the panic wouldn't stop. And the chapel of love fell down. With the English beat all around. of Rages fashions itself as a real down and dirty barn burner of an 11 o'clock number, but it's hard to pass as an 11 o'clock number when you're clocking in at 2 minutes and 42 seconds. You want to write a brand new song in order to obscure the fact that your show is a cynical cash grab? Fine, but do me the favor of writing an entire song, not one that putters out after gesturing toward depth. Jeff, Mama, Papa, why can't it be like it was? Papa, Mama, Jeff, always you wrestle inside me, always you will. I did get a kick out of Dinah Manoff's deranged delivery of the phrase Rock of Rages, Rock of Rages. 
Very funny. If a man could love a liar And a woman can love a thief There's a few things, baby You should know about me Confidential was cut from the show nine days into its run and then reinstated in June 1985 between the songs Maybe I Know and River Deep Mountain High. Per the show's book, directors can include Keep It Confidential at that designated point, they can leave it out, or they can use it as the opening for Act 2, though the show was originally presented as a one-act. Considering there is zero dialogue that could be used to contextualize Keep It Confidential, I find the best option would be to leave it on the cutting room floor. Doesn't seem like the creative team gave a shit either way. Ah, keep it, get rid of it, who cares? Everyone dies in the end, we are but shades. Keep It Confidential is one of the show's few original tunes, and while it isn't a total clunker, stylistically it is quite obviously grounded in the mid-1980s. I'm sure it would have felt right at home on one of Darlene Love's albums, but stylistically it sticks out like a sore thumb when surrounded by 1960s doo-wop pop. Besides, we don't have time for a smoky R&B vamp number from Darlene. No one bought a ticket so they could sit through a backdoor Darlene Love vanity project. They want to hear the songs from their misspent youth. No, no, no. We can do both. No, you can't. Focus. P.S. Number one, Keep It Confidential sounds a lot like a Tina Turner B-side, which is ironic considering Tina's ninth studio album, Wildest Dreams, includes a song written by the Pet Shop Boys called Confidential. Wildest Dreams wasn't released until 1996, and Confidential bears no resemblance to Darlene Love's Keep It Confidential, but it does beg the question. So what is the truth? P.S. Number two, there was an attempt to turn Darlene's life story into a musical, but the end product, Portrait of a Singer, never made it to Broadway. Ah, them's the breaks, I guess.
deep mountain high number is set up with a single line of dialogue from Ellie Greenwich. Here's the line. Darlene, you and I have been waiting a long time for this one. Take it, river deep mountain high, quote. That line would lead you to believe we've hit upon some colossal moment for the character of Darlene Love, but she doesn't share a single book scene with Ellie. We've already gone over this, but I'm going to underline this point again. She doesn't talk to Ellie in any sort of book scene, or anyone for that matter. She doesn't talk to anyone. She has no proper dialogue. The book originally established her as the show's narrator, as you'll recall, our guide through the record kingdom, but all of that was thrown out after the first ten minutes. Darlene may sing a great number of songs throughout Leader of the Pack, seven of the 20-plus songs, to be exact, but no attempt is made to establish how she and Ellie met or what their relationship was like. They are simply best friends. So guess what? It is not possible for me to care that she's finally getting her big chance to sing River Deep, Mountain High. I don't care that the song was meant for her and not Tina Turner because I do not know anything about Darlene. Aren't you glad that faint wisp of a person is getting what they always wanted? Huh? What? Who's talking to me? Well, lots of people know who Darlene Love is, Jonathan. So? I'm sure they do. What? So? Who? What? Am I to blame? Is that what's being implied in that question? We're taking it for granted that everyone in the audience at the Ambassador Theater knew Darlene Love? You can't do that. That's not how any of this works. You're supposed to play to everyone in the house. Assume nothing. Get us all on the same page. This is a book musical. Write a script that treats people like they have a right to establish some semblance of a personality while they're on stage, and then we'll talk. Here's a quote from Darlene Love's Wikipedia page that I think is important to examine, just sort of meditate on. Here's the quote. Quote, The show-stopping number of Leader of the Pack, River Deep, Mountain High, had been recorded by Phil Spector with Ike and Tina Turner and had been less than the success they had expected. That might be kind of true. It only reached number 88 on the U.S. Billboard Top 100, but the song was intentionally buried in America by DJs and producers who disliked Phil Spector. Internationally, the song was a hit. It topped out at number three in the UK, so this editorializing on the part of Wikipedia reads as disingenuous at best. Oh, if only Darlene could have sung it. The song didn't flop because it was taken away from its rightful artist dum-dums. It didn't rightfully belong to anyone. And in the long run, it became one of Tina's biggest standards. So get out of here with this well-actually stuff. I also want to read a couple of quotes that my husband Chris provided to me from Tina Turner's first memoir, I, Tina. Here's a quote from the book. River Deep Mountain High was, to the amazement of everyone involved with the record, a disaster. A quote from Larry Levine, the trade publications gave River Deep mediocre reviews. Everyone had an end for Phil. He'd had, what, 26 straight chart records? So everybody took this opportunity to push him down. River Deep was Phil's demise in the record business. Here's another quote from I, Tina. Uh, it's from Darlene Love, actually. Darlene Love says, quote, in those days I didn't get emotionally involved with Phil's records. We looked at them as bubblegum music. This new song he had was the only one that had ever really meant something to me. I wanted to do the record so bad, but he said, no, no, this one's not for you. Quote. I actually get more emotional weight out of those five sentences from Darlene Love than I do from the entirety of Leader of the Pack's book. You had the source, 
right there. Darlene was in the cast, and if you'd cared at all about her relationship to Ellie Greenwich, the music career, her music career, the music industry, I should say, you would have found room for her perspective. But I guess you were too busy using Darlene as a walking jukebox, a fucking prop. You wanted a big black lady to steal the show. Yet again, we find ourselves dealing with that convention. Let's get one last clip from this album. Why not? It's from the song, We're Gonna Make It After All. We're gonna make it after all Cause after all Look what we've been through We're gonna take it to the sky we're reaching high the way we used to do. Is the song in which Darlene Love describes herself as Ellie Greenwich's best friend. Uh, keep telling yourself that, Darlene. They didn't let you speak. I, I don't know what to tell you, Darlene. I mean, we heard your narration. You're not a natural actor by any stretch of the imagination, but still, real best friends get to talk to their best friends in at least one book scene. And that's all I have to say about the score for Leader of the Pack. Let's get a word from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. Six, seven, eight. It's me, Joe Iconis, the composer of Be More A Chill. Oh, you just caught me uh, banging out one of my tunes from Be More A Chill. It's Michael in the bathroom. Oh, you're a fan? Oh my gosh, how fantastic. Thank you so much for your support. You know, I'm, I'm a really nice guy. I'm a jovial guy for the most part, okay? And I like to attribute that to my lifestyle. I got a healthy lifestyle, all right? I don't smoke, I don't drink, and the only vice that I allow myself is a cup of delicious, rich, toasty, roasty 5678 coffee. And I like to think that it's the coffee that keeps me even keeled. It keeps me grounded. It keeps me going during those tough days. You know, not everyone can be positive all the time. I like to think that I'm an upbeat guy by nature, but there are days, man, where I just get really, really angry. You know, and you might be asking yourself, what does Joe Iconis have to be angry about? Well, you know, it's just these think pieces. I mean, <laughs> I read these think pieces about ah these these tiny heartfelt musicals, these little indies, indie shop storefront musicals written by, you know, guys like me. Guys who are just starting out in this business. I'm a young pub, I'm a young guy, I'm untested, and I'm trying to prove myself. I get be more chill on Broadway. It's this little indie teeny tiny storefront musical. I mean, all of our props were made out of like, I don't know, we had 
toilet paper rolls, paper towel rolls. I mean, 90% of the production design was toilet paper rolls and paper towel rolls. And then these think pieces come along and they, they criticize us, man. It really sucks. It really makes me angry. Oh, it really does, especially when these same think piece editorial writers can't even realize what's happening on Broadway right now. They don't even understand that the corporate interests, that big money is just taking over all of Broadway. I mean, Big Chill was an original story, man. It was about real people. It wasn't based on a crummy movie from the 1980s or the 1990s or the 2000s. It was an original story. And it wasn't ruled by corporate interests. It wasn't sponsored by Coca-Cola, okay? I'm not writing Coca-Cola the fucking musical. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I refused the call. Hey, Joe, you want to write Coca-Cola the musical? Fuck you. I don't want to write Coca-Cola the musical. <laughs> there I go again, getting cranky. And that's when I reach for a big mug of five, six, seven, eight coffee. I think I'll have a sip right now. <laughs> Oh, I'm feeling a lot better. I'm not thinking about corporate interests at all. <laughs> oh, there I go. I gotta go, everybody. Okay, thank you so much for your support. I know that you're all out there just rooting for me. I've got a brand new project. It's called Prison Sluts the Musical, and I'm real excited for it. It's an original story. And no, it's not sexist. It turns sexism on its ear, okay? All right, it's about... A wonderful, beautiful woman who goes to prison and meets an, ah, a lot of wonderful, beautiful women. I'm not going to spoil it for you. Why am I even talking? <laughs> I've been told not to talk. Oh, God almighty. I'm so sad and lonely and depressed. Gotta go. Five, six, seven, eight, coffee. You can count on it. Unlike Broadway. Final thoughts regarding Leader of the Pack. Leader of the Pack is wholly disinterested in exploring complicated emotions or highlighting relevant themes from Ellie Greenwich's story. And when it takes exactly one break from dishing out candy store ditties to make room for Rock of Rages, it's a classic example of Too Little, Too Late, a cathartic musical soliloquy for a character we couldn't know or care less about. I'm sad. I don't know who you are, Ellie. I don't care. The script is... I mean, it must be said again, the script is an insult to a life lived. It successfully manages to dilute an entire person down to paint samples held up under cheap fluorescent lighting, and I'm surprised by how much that bums me out. I mean, God help me if anyone tries to honor my legacy in this way. Jonathan Pernasek was a child at one time, and then he had a podcast, and sometimes he was sad, but he also nabbed himself a husband. The end! Yeah! That's not how you relay the events of an adult's life through art. Adults are complicated, they're fucked up, they're not the heroes of their own Saturday morning cartoon shows. Leader of the Pack is for the birds. It's for babies, it's an after-school snack consisting of two almonds and half a napkin, and I never want to think about it again. I'm so upset. Now, in 1985, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was, uh, you should know this by now, what is it? That's right, Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and the additional nominees were Grind and Quilters. Leader of the Pack shouldn't have been nominated for Best Musical at all. 
full stop. It should have been produced as a review, but no, 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 no. They had to try and trick us. It's a real musical, mister. A good and proper musical. Really, it is, mister. Come on, you can trust us, mister. Screw you. I swear to God, this anger, this frustration really isn't as performative as you might think. This show really did drive me crazy. Let's rank it, shall we? Let's put, uh, let's put leader of the pack all the way down at number 42. Between Crazy For You at 41 and South Pacific at 43, I also want to announce a slight change, a switcheroo in our current ranking. City of Angels is at number 29 and Applause is number 30. Those two were up against each other. It's just that they were flipped as of last week and now we have flipped them. City of Angels is above Applause, okay? Not below it, okay? All right, thank you. Thank you very much. Of course, if you're interested in checking out this list, all of the shows that we have ranked so far, you can go to our Twitter profile, Musical Man Pod, click on the pinned tweet, and go to that second tab. You'll find that full list right there waiting for you, baby. Yeah! In regards to show-related ephemera, I have a television commercial for the original Broadway production of Leader of the Pack, and I want to talk about it. We begin... Oh, okay, well, let's play the audio first, actually. Patty and Mitty, can we get the audio of that commercial? They're coming from everywhere, any way they can, to the leader, the leader of the pack. Leader of the Pack, the Ellie Greenwich musical directed and choreographed by Michael Peters on Broadway at the Ambassador Theater. Call 212-239-6200. 239-6200. Thank you very much. So to go back and describe what you would have seen if you haven't watched this, we begin on a shot of motorcyclists advancing toward the camera. Then the voiceover artist delivers a somber, sobering truth. They're coming from everywhere, any way they can, to the leader, the leader of the pack. Cut to Dinah Mainoff singing into the mouth of a giant, navy green, two-dimensional pot bottle. Cut to a white guy screaming about hanky-panky. You can tell he's a man of sexual means because he's not wearing a shirt under his sweater vest. Oh my god, the delicious butterscotch delights awaiting us all behind that inch and a half of scratchy wool. I mean, look at this guy. He's sliding down a fire pole thanks to an awkward added who wouldn't fuck him cut to darlene love in an old homecoming dress standing on a bubblegum pink catwalk her wig is blown out all to hell and she's surrounded by hair models from a new jersey salon's style book do you want to look like the freddie mercury clones in their snow white singlets or do you want to look like the ratty denizens of a meth-ridden bowling alley we have options dearie what they did to the women in this commercial is a crime. These are not costume pieces. They are tattered strips of fabric shellacked with rhinestones and fastened to their bodies with safety pins. It's a menagerie of grotesqueries. The editing gets real hepped up after that, so I'll forego any further descriptions, if only for the sake of my equilibrium. Before we take another spin on the musical carousel, I want to honor the fact that we just closed out our first season of Tony-nominated musicals. That's a wrap on 1985. And what better way to stop and reflect on our progress than to invite a special friend back into the studio. I'm not even going to introduce him. You're going to know exactly who it is the moment he starts talking. Take it away, old friend of the podcast. (laughs) 
Oh, hey, hello, how are you? It's me, Shrek. <laughs> That's right, I'm back, baby. And I'm not talking about 5678 Coffee this time around. Oh, no, and I'm not doing a musical shout-out either. I'm here to answer a very important question. I'm here to answer which of the musicals from 1985 would I put in my belly? What musical should get in my belly? Now, as a reminder, here are all of the musicals we've been talking about from this season. We have Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry fucking Finn. We have Grind, we have Quilters, and we have a leader of the pack. Now I'm going to tell you right now, I have no interest in putting a leader of the pack in me belly. I'm not a fan of the 60s. Ooh, far out, man. He'd be cool, yeah, man. Woodstock, yeah, man. No, thank you. I am a conservative man. All right, a conservative man and beast. <laughs> I've got a real, ooh, I've got a bit of mojo down below my waist. Don't make any mistake about that. But my politics are staunchly conservative. Conservative, and I have no interest in glorifying the 1960s, all right? So later the pack, you can get to the back of the line is what you can fucking do. Here's an idea. My ass is really fucking slimy back there, all right? I've been wiping my ass until it's fucking bloody. How about you do me a favor and take your licky tongue and licky my fucking bicky. That's what I call my butthole. My bicky. Get back there and lick my bicky, alright? Let's talk about the other shows. We got Grind. We got Quilters. Alright, we got Big River. What oh, What shows gonna get in my belly? Well, it's not going to be Quilters, I'll tell you that much right now. Have you ever tried to eat a bunch of Pioneer Girls? Oh, they go down. <laughs> they may go down smooth, but when you have to shite them out, Hey, it's a real fucking pinch. Oh, my nerves just can't take it anymore. I got to tell you, I've eaten a lot of Pioneer Girls in my time, and they're delicious, but I got to swear it off, baby. They're my addiction, and I've been on the wagon for too long. Can't fall off there. No, can't fall off there. My ass can't take it. Leader of the pack, you know what I'm talking about back there. It's like a burnt puzzle back there, a 1,000-piece puzzle that was burned by a small handheld torch. Ah, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? All the pieces just falling off like little tiny charcoal chunks back there, ah, yeah? You got... Oh, that's right, leader of the pack. That's right. You keep licking my bicking. <laughs> okay, so we got Grind and we got Big River. Okay, you know what? Fuck Big River, okay? It's boring. It's fucking boring. Okay, it's for babies. Okay, slavery is bad. We should treat people equally. Yeah, tell me something I don't know. I'm a fucking ogre, okay? I've been trying to preach this kind of message for years now, but my conservative politics get in the way. The police, see? Police getting all on my ass. Yeah, speaking of my ass, leader of the pack, how does that taste back there, eh? Like a combination of chicken heads and salty black licorice, eh? I should think so. And so grind, I gotta tell ya. I gotta tell ya, grind. You know what? I like you, grind. You know I'm gonna put you in my belly because you make my hips swivel. I like a good, oh, a good rough and tumble grind in the sheets, eh? Ask Donkey. He knows what I'm fucking talking about. In the middle of the night, I catch his eye from across the room. He's sitting in that little armchair. And I go, let's do a bit of a grind and bump donkey. And he goes, oi, oi, oi. And I go, oi, 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 oi. 
and by the time we're done, the moon has seen all of our carnal actions, and she is turned on, baby. Oh, yeah, we go out and do the fucking full moonlight, and we get fucking randy. So, Grind, congratulations. You're the musical that's getting in my belly. <laughs> okay, that's it for me, Shrek. I'll see you the next time we close out a Tony Award season, and I'll answer that question again. That answer being, the question I should say being, what musical's going to get in my belly? All right, bye. Thank you very much, Shrek. And now to determine what show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rodgers and Hammerstein show, Crocs the Musical. Everyone ready? Then away we go. I have stepped off of the musical carousel, and it would seem that our next subject is going to be... Oh, okay. This was a nominee back in 1969. It ran for 1,750 performances. 1969, 1,750 performances. Nominee, not a winner. Nominee, and that show is... Hair, baby! We're going to be talking about 1969's hair, so get ready. Get ready! Go to patreon.com slash Musical Man Pod to find out how you can support the show financially. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. If you donate one dollar a month, you will get a verbal shout out each and every week. Let's do those verbal shout outs now. Thank you so much for donating. Mark S, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. Thank you, thank you. One dollar a month donors also get bonus episodes covering the 73rd annual Tony Awards, the trailer for Cats, a ABC's The Little Mermaid Live and my full review of Cats. We have six more $1 a month bonus episodes scheduled for this year. Who knows? We might add even more. So go to patreon.com slash musicalmanbot to learn about what is coming your way as a $1 a month patron. We also have $3 a month. That's the next tier, okay? So if you donate $3 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. You also get access to the ongoing series Wildcats Everywhere, the bi-weekly high school musical podcast. The episode that's dropping today is our coverage of the first two episodes of High School Musical, the musical, the series. So I do hope that everybody enjoys that. If you donate $5 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned. Plus, you are able to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. It's true. You get all 12 episodes of season one of All I Ask of You, the advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, and you get access to our ongoing Broadway in Chicago review series. We have discussed Oslo, Mean Girls, Once on This Island, and our next subject is Summer, the Donna Summer musical, baby. And finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus you get access to The Snub Club, the first season of The Snub Club, I should say. All 12 episodes, these are all about musicals that were never, never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Those subjects are as follows. Amelie, Merrily We Roll Along, Flahooly, America 
American Psycho, Be More Chill, Jekyll and Hyde, Allegiance, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, The Bridges of Madison County, A Doll's Life, Aida, and Jesus Christ Superstar. Your donations go toward the purchase of cast recordings, movie rentals, and offsetting the cost of being hosted through Podbean, baby. And if we ever bring in $100 or more in total monthly donations, I will produce M3, The Movie Musical Man, a monthly series for which I will watch trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. Thank you, as always, for listening to the show. If you are listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to give a five-star rating and write, write out a five-star review. We have 29 five-star reviews, and once we hit 30, I will record a special episode about Disney's Descendants Trilogy. Yes, we are one review away, so just, just come on. We gotta get over this. We gotta get over this hump. We gotta get this done. So, if you are listening and you haven't done the work, if you think you're a fan of this show and you haven't written a five-star review, how dare you? You, oh my god, especially if you listen to the show through Apple Podcasts. Come on, do it, baby. I'm pressuring you. I'm pushing you to the edge, baby. Do it, do it. You can stream the show at musicalmanpod.podbead.com, and you can also stream through Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod, and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny in the booth, Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and Zach Little for our fabulous music. Oh, that's the doorbell, baby. Oh, you know what that sound means. The doorbell, you know what it means. Ah, yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, Athenishan, and good night. What is the truth?